When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Welcome to Hacking Your Leadership. I'm Chris and welcome to today's guest interview. Our guest interviews are long form interviews with leaders from around the world. They've each been selected because of their valuable perspective on leadership and work they've accomplished in this space. Today, we're joined by Matthew Confer, Vice President of Strategy and Business Development at Ability, a company that utilizes simulation-based learning to improve leadership in organizations around the world. Welcome, Matthew. Say hi to our audience. Oh, it's great to be here, Chris. Will you do me a favor? Start by telling us a little bit about what you do for a living and how you got there. Yeah, so I've been with my current firm, Ability, for about two and a half years. And as you mentioned, we do leadership development training, and we do it in a somewhat unique way. So we're firm believers in the power of real world practice without real world consequences. So what that looks like for us is an approach similar to what uh, airline pilots might take or an approach similar to what the military or healthcare professionals might do. And that's a simulation based approach to training. So whether that's a manager development program at a Fortune 500 company or whether that's a leadership class at a leading university, we have created a team based technologically driven simulation engine for you to actually put your leadership and management skills to the test and i got here through a wonderful path of different previous responsibilities that started at deloitte consulting led to a financial technology company here in austin texas that since has brought me to my current role at ability that sounds awesome this is a serendipitous moment for me because about maybe three weeks ago maybe even less Lorenzo and I released an episode of Hacking Your Leadership where we talked about how as leaders, sometimes when you are vulnerable and you make leadership decisions, you mess up because it's virtually impossible to practice unless you're actually doing it with people. And then when you make a mistake that it has real world consequences. So um, I, I find it really interesting that there's a company who has actually been able to have a, a, a real way of kind of a choose your own adventure game, so to speak, for lack of a better uh, analogy, where the, where the consequences of making leadership mistakes can can be real in terms of what you'd actually see as a leader, but but not career derailing or career stalling because they're they're you're not actually offending people and you're not actually causing people to want to want to turn off. So I mean, talk about like whatever you can share about the technology behind that and how it actually even works. Yeah, so I'll talk about one of our simulations, which is what we call management challenge, and it's all about the the challenge and opportunity of being a people manager. And so you and a partner actually manage manage six virtual employees that have different personalities and they send you emails based on the decisions that you make and you decide which projects to work them on and you have difficult conversations with them. One of them resigns on you. One of them is a top performer who is disappointed that you're not spending enough time coaching them. Um, if you and I were partners, we might actually get to practice, to your point, some of the things that as a manager, we never would feel comfortable trying trying in the real world. And I think that's something that I learned about myself early in my career when I was at Deloitte Consulting. It's sometimes really scary to try a new approach 
when you're dealing with actual humans. And I think one of the reasons that our organization has been successful is there's a real need to practice these things but not have the ramifications. And and if you are just talking about it or you're just reading it on a PowerPoint slide, it's not as powerful as actually putting it into practice. And that's kind of where the team-based, competitive, gamified approach to it really comes into play. Do you find that people who go through it actually um, feel the weight of their decisions still? Because, uh, you know, it, it's tough. It's almost like I... I I picture myself going through something like that and thinking, you know, just kind of like, ooh, let's let's see, let's see how I can like kind of, uh, you know, socially engineer what's going on here because I'm not really hurting anybody, so so why not? Do do people actually feel the weight of that? Yeah, so this might resonate with some members of the audience, but I was a big SimCity fan as a, as a kid growing up, and a lot of people describe our games in some way of a SimCity approach. So in SimCity, you're this mayor of this town and. You can build a sports stadium, you can build highways, and then unfortunately you can wreak havoc on your town. Um, We don't necessarily find that as much in the game, and I think mainly it's honestly because the vast majority of our simulations find their way into high potential programs or new manager programs at organizations where the participants are one, really happy to be in the program, two, it's a wonderful career progression opportunity, and three, we tend to find that a lot of organizations get pretty heavy executive sponsorship. And so as a result, their performance in the game is kind of alongside of maybe um, a mentorship role with an executive at the organization, or they're working with colleagues who are going to be members of the leadership team in the future. So they really want to show up as their best self. Okay. So I I put myself in the position of a person who's worked in organizations for paychecks for a long time. And and you go through the annual mandatory you know, harassment training, right? And the the examples are almost almost laughable, you know. Meaning it doesn't take a br- a really bright person to understand that you don't treat your employees like Harvey Weinstein. You, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the, these extreme examples where it's like you just kind of know what the answer is, and you kind of go through it, and the company knows that you know what the answer is, and it's a compliance thing or whatever. You know, it. it Leadership is nuance, you know? There, there's so many possible scenarios that don't involve like an obvious, well, this is what a bad leader would do, this is what a good leader would do, that are just really personality-based. Uh, you know, have you found that, that your program is successful or being, at being able to, to hit that? without people just kind of saying, well, this is clearly the obvious choice. So here's the fun part about it or why I think it's been successful. So if you and I were on a team together and there were 24 people in the class, you and I would have six virtual employees. The other teams in the class though would have the same six virtual employees, but we would all have a bevy of different choices that we could make with those six employees. And then we have to rationalize to the group. So the simulation spits out the results if we decide to train a character who has sent us an email in the game and says that they feel like they're comfortable and they want to be put on a high visibility task and we make the decision to instead put them on a routine task with somebody they've had problems with in the past 
They're going to let us know it. Our score is going to be impacted. And we are competing with the other team. So we're all given the same resources, but we all handle it a very different way. And then during the debriefs, we talk to each team about, you know, why did you make that decision with Jim, one of the characters in the game, for example. And I think that allows us to break through the, this is an e-learning course where I know what button to click because the game's basically kind of telling me which way to go. There's an immersive competitive angle to it that gets people out of that safe space. Do, do you think, I mean, clearly this is, this is about decision-making, you know, this is about leaders, leadership decision-making. Why do you think that there's a deficit in that when it comes to leaders? I think the biggest reason, and, and I fell into this, I'm, I'm a perfect example of this. I ascended relatively quickly at a top consulting firm, and I'm really proud of the work that it took to get there, but it also made me somewhat complacent. You know, what has got me to where I am is potentially not going to get me to the next level, but it's the only thing I know. So I'm not as worried about pushing my comfortable limits. I wanna kinda just keep doing what I was doing. And I think the world changes so fast now that you have to be a little bit more able to deal with the ambiguity. We talk a lot in our simulations about kind of a VUCA environment. You've got volatility, you've got uncertainty, you've got complexity, and you've got ambiguity. And that's what our clients say that their leaders need to be able to deal with. And so I think we do need to push people a little bit. We need to up the intensity and we need to make them feel comfortable that they're not going to know that there's a perfectly right decision, but they need to be able to rationalize why they did what they did. So when it comes to making decisions as a leader, oftentimes the decisions are made on the fly. You know, you can't always slow down and say, let me make that decision in a week after I've had a chance to spreadsheet out what my different options are and weigh things and kind of, you know, and not, not only do you not know have the time to, but it's not good people skills to, to try to um, automate the decision, so to speak, or, or, or objectify it. A lot of these decisions are subjective in nature because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with emotion and you're dealing with, um, you know, people's hopes and dreams that they may not have even shared with you and that now your decision is, is impacting. How do you think leaders can get better at with you know aside from going through going through your company um how can leaders get better at the process of making sure that the decisions they're making are are even if they don't even if they're not better that they can at least explain how they got there and and so that they can be given the grace of knowing that when they make the wrong decision, it was at least um, well-intentioned, I would guess to say. I think some of the times what leaders run into is they're not able to rationalize the decision because they didn't have a clear sense of what their three main objectives were. Even if you make a decision and it ends up failing slightly, if you're able to say the reason that I did it is because I thought it was going to lead to A, B, and C, you're in a better position than simply just trying to rationalize why the decision went poorly. So we talk a lot in our simulations about how do you build consensus? The the one thing that permeates all of our simulations is they're all team-based because we find that people just work collaboratively a lot more than they ever did in the past. And so as a result, the people who tend to be, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but the people people who tend to be the most successful in the simulation, in my opinion, are those that do a really good job of consensus building. Even if it doesn't work out, they got the entire team on board for why they were going to pursue a certain decision. So that would be a big suggestion that I would make to rising leaders is you have to be really 
confident and comfortable getting consensus before you go down a certain path. De-risking can disguise itself as consensus building sometimes too. So how do you make sure that leaders are not just trying to shirk it and say, well, hey, I might have made the wrong decision, but look, all of us did, so you can't hold anybody, anybody, anybody accountable. I like that perspective. And one of the reasons I like it is our decision-making simulation, which we call enterprise or executive challenge, is all about cross-functional collaboration. So the game is sending different pertinent pieces of information to each department. So somebody's playing R&D, somebody's playing sales and marketing, somebody's playing the CEO. The game's sending different pieces of information to each department. The end of the entire experience, so after multiple iterations of different quarters and different challenges, each team presents to a fictitious board of directors about why they've won the experience. Because the whole game is built around venture capital funding and we're gonna pick one team to invest in again. And I find it fascinating because at the end of the game, to your point, there are some teams who make this incredible pitch about how they have financially outperformed everybody. Another team will get up and came in third place in revenue, but their pitch is entirely focused on the fact that they didn't lose any of their virtual employees to the competition. Another team will get up and will say, you threw a natural disaster at us. When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. You threw an acquisition attempt at us. You threw a social media campaign at us. And we handled all of your challenges. You should pick us. And so what I think is... Leaders who are able to convey a vision and why you should trust them going forward is a really powerful leadership skill, even if every decision didn't go your way. Oh, sure. I mean, what life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it and how we position it. So, you know, yeah, of course, you could take a, a negative situation and turn it around to be a, an asset to you if you if you know how to get the best out of people. Yeah, no, no question about that. Um, I, I was watching your, your TED Talk um, in preparation for this interview, and I, I, I like the um, the story about the cobras, and um, and people can I'll leave a link in in the podcast description to the TED talk if you want to watch it. It's about twelve minutes long, but this concept of of not kind of thinking through what human nature is. And let me give you a real world example on, on my end. I used to work for a retail organization that wanted to increase close rate. That's the number of people that bought instead of leaving without buying anything. And so what did the leadership of the organization do? They put traffic counters on the door to, to see who was coming in and who was leaving. So if 10 people walked in and there were four transactions, it was a 40% close rate. And so what leaders learned to do was if they raised the, the traffic counters by three feet, then it would only count people who were over five foot 10 and nobody under five foot 10 and all of a sudden your close rate was better. And it was this concept of if you, if you, if you give somebody only half of the information or, or try to impact a single item as opposed to really thinking about what the overarching goal is, all you're doing is tra training people to move numbers from one column to another. You want revenue? Great. Discount everything 90%. You'll get all the revenue you want to. You want profit? Great. Don't discount anything. You'll get all the profit you want. But they can't 
exist individually. They have to go hand in hand. And so how do leaders get better at making sure that they tr- that they're, they're trusting their people enough to give them the information they need to where they're not just setting them up to say, we're going to see how well you move numbers as opposed to actually how you impact the what we want to see impacted? I think leaders that I've watched that have been really successful and leaders that I've been really proud to work for are those that push for non-consensus beliefs. They almost want people on their team to play the role of the devil's advocate. They want that argument back and forth, not because they might change the direction that they were planning to go all along, but I think it's because it makes them stronger or more convinced that it's the right way to go, or it allows them to tailor their approach differently to handle the things that maybe they weren't considering. So I think one of the reasons why I think consensus building is really powerful, there's another part to that. You have to build consensus with people who maybe originally don't agree with you to make your ideas stronger. Do you think that there's prep work that is needed before you appoint somebody a devil's advocate? Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to, to find somebody who's gonna challenge a status quo. There are people who live for that moment, but it doesn't always drive the team in a positive direction if there isn't stuff done in advance. I, I, I don't know, I've seen it go both ways. I mean, our organization right now is, is struggling with something. What we're struggling with is in a, in a pre-COVID world, we did about 20% of our simulations fully virtual. So we were, we were pretty good at virtual training before it became the in vogue thing as a result of a global pandemic. Now we're struggling with what is the world going to look like when potentially and hopefully sooner rather than later, the global health issues are behind us rather than in front of us. Will people want to return to the office and with business travel with the same intensity they did before? And how much of our company should we double down on the fact that we have been very successful because we can do simulation training without anybody ever getting into the same classroom or hotel banquet hall together. And that's been an asset during the time of COVID, but will that be an asset in the future? And we're trying to play that out as a leadership team and say, if the world returns, what type of company do we need to be? If the world of the past doesn't return, what type of company do we need to be? And how do we kind of shoot for some middle ground and then adjust as we go? Because we just have no idea. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, companies, you, you have to meet your customers where they are clearly. You know, I there's a, there's something I always think about, but in, in 2007, if I received an email that said, uh, that had the footer on the bottom sent from my iPhone, it, 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 the implication was I'm mobile, I'm tech savvy, I'm reachable anywhere. And then by 2010, if I received one that said sent from my iPhone, it was, I don't know how to use email to remove the, the footer on the bottom of, of my of my sent email form. And, and so it, it's the same action, but the context of the world around us changes what it means. You know, I think in 2019 and earlier, if a company would have suggested, hey, let's just do everything virtually, the implication of the customer might have been, wait a minute, you want my business, but you don't want to invest the time and the money and the manpower and the and, and everything to come meet me and sit with me face to face. In a post-COVID world, having the ability to do things virtually might mean, hey, you know what, we're not going to let anything, even a global pandemic, stop us from meeting our customers where they are. So again, the exact same thing framed differently can, can make all the difference. And I think leaders do that in their decision making every day with their people. Yeah. And the biggest thing that we're hearing from clients is we actually now want to train virtually, not just 
because it's a necessity. It's also because our people need practice in this new medium. If you want to host a one-on-one -on -one meeting that goes over a performance review and you've only ever done that over lunch, coffee, or in the office, you sure as heck need to train a little bit on how you actually deliver feedback and coach in a fully virtual setting if that's not something that comes of second nature to you because this is the first iteration that you've ever had to do fully virtual management. Yeah, I agree. There, so a leader once told me that anything consequential, anything development related should never be done over an email ever. Meaning an, an email is meant for like very objective, either, yep, yep I'll be there, you know, responding to meetings, you know, I, 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 this is the time, very factual kind of stuff. Anything that has the ability to, to have a subjective connotation to the emotion behind it or the context behind it shouldn't be done with an email to begin with. And, and, and so I think that there are a lot of leaders who are having to learn that right now that they've made some missteps because they, they shifted their leadership from a in-person thing to an email thing and and what they would have been given kind of a leeway for on the mistakes they're made, making in person because you can look at somebody in the eye and see that they're coming from a good place. You can't look at somebody in the eye and see they're coming from a good place over an email. And, and so I think there are a lot of people, a lot of leaders who are struggling with this right now. Yeah, and you hit on the, the TED Talk, which I did about decision-making and the second step of that, it was a three-step process, is the one that resonated with most people and it is where the Cobra story comes from and it's all about embracing a pre-mortem. And I think we're so conditioned to think about postmortems, you know, the project ends, the group, whatever gets together, looks back at how things went right or how things went wrong. And at least what we see in a simulated world is teams that are successful get together on the front end and assume things might fail miserably and do a pre-mortem to try to understand why that would happen and then work to mitigate those things from potentially transpiring. Yeah, I, I think it's human nature to want to not be, it's almost you believe it's pessimistic to even consider that it might not work. You know, um, I, I once I remember hearing the first time that a, that news organizations they preemptively write obituaries for people who are like famous and in their like 70s and 80s, and they're just kind of written. And some of them sit there for five or ten years. They get updated every once in a while. And in my mind, I was thinking, what a what a cynical and 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 lack of you know. There's no emote. You know, it's a, it's like. Of course, that's what they're supposed to do because if you don't plan for it, then now you're the the last news organization to post it when it actually happens. And so, you know, we 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 kind of I think we erroneously apply this this kind of emotional lens to something that then prevents us from doing what really the right thing to do is. I agree. I mean, one of my favorite kind of stories is that, you know, the greatest horse carriage that ever existed was in the year right before the automobile completely knocked it off. Like they had it. got they had gotten so good at horse carriages. It was the best ever. It was the most high end horse carriage ever. And it was pretty much the end of the horse carriage, but they didn't know it at the time. And I think that's how sometimes you need to think as a leader. You need to have a more pessimistic lens because the positive lens is super easy and it comes really natural. Sure. And it would make sense that you know it's you know the old saying it's always the last place you look and no one really thinks about what that means well it means you stopped looking after you found it so of course it's always the last place you look even if it was the first place you look and so it will always be that the best horse carriage is always the one that is right before there's no more horse carriages so this idea that while we're we're, we're rolling high and everything is fantastic that should almost be a, a a canary in the coal mine for that a massive change is about to happen. Could be tomorrow and it could be in five years, but either way, 
you know, don't don't let that sense of kind of um, we're doing everything right lead you to believe that it will continue to be right tomorrow. Well, and I, I the Harvard Business Review just had an article that was put together by Microsoft, and they did all of this looking at their internal statistics about what's happening since everybody has moved remote. And the thing that stuck out the most to me is what they found is the average amount of time that people are spending in meetings has gone up, but the average duration of the meetings has gone down. We're realizing that we didn't need 60 minutes when we're at home and we have a little bit of Zoom or video conference fatigue. We need to meet more because we're not seeing people at the coffee station or in the hall, but we're realizing that we can meet for shorter bursts of time. And I think, I hope that sticks around no matter what the working world looks like in the future. I think it will stick around in areas where the leaders understand that that is how people are most productive. And it comes with trust. If you trust your people, to get the work done that you've asked them to do or that there is part of their job, then you'd be surprised how many people rise to the occasion, or at the very least, they'll show you their true colors in a very short period of time. You know, what, either is a win because either they move up and they and the organization grows and gets stronger, or those individual people get moved out. Um, I, I think in the, the old way of doing things where you have less meetings and there are longer meetings, it's almost a, a it's a it's a lowest common denominator that allows low talent to hide and it allow and and it prevents high talent from moving up these are kind of the times when when the, the cream rises to the top so to speak when you see who's committed and who's getting the work done not from the hours spent but from the the productivity and the movement that happens during those little 15 minute meetings i couldn't agree more and i think People are trying to find ways to differentiate themselves. And I think a differentiating skill that maybe we wouldn't have thought would have been one in the future, in the past, is how you actually manage, how you lead, and how you actually build consensus fully remotely. It's it's harder. I mean, we're as a company struggling with that. Do we want to come back to a fully, we were in office culture that got a lot of benefit and inspiration from being all in the same room together and talking about new simulations and iterations on what we were gonna do. We've kept a lot of that even fully remotely, but how do we wanna make that happen when we do return to some semblance of normal? When something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, Puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en Español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20.
normalcy again. So when we, when we first started this lockdown, I remember being on Zoom calls with people and they were, you know, sitting in their dining room and you get the whole like where you see just this because they're on like a cell phone or like the bottom half of the laptop where you see, the, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't seem to see their chin or their mouth and, and they're, they're sitting on like a folding kitchen table chair and it's all these, you, you, the impression was that they didn't think this was for the long term. This was a stopgap. It was a bandaid on the problem. We don't need to really about worry about being comfortable because this is temporary anyway. I'm not going to spend three thousand dollars on making an office that's comfortable at home to be able to do this. Over the over the last few months, I see that less and less, and more and more people are are putting time and effort and resources into making sure that they can be productive. It, it, it took a psychological acceptance of that this isn't a short-term thing. It's probably a long-term thing. But I think what goes along with that is that mindset shift of if this is in it for the long-term, I can't just be using this as a way to like stay connected. I actually have to work. And once I have to work, now I need to make sure that it's comfortable to work because, or I'm going to burn out. I'm going to burn out sitting in a folding chair eight hours a day. I need to have something nicer. I need to be have, make sure people can see me, that my camera is nice enough to where people can see how my eyes look and how my smile looks and, and judge my body language because body language and eyes and smiles are such a large part of how we convey emotion and how we connect with people. And, and so I think it, it's because that part of it's getting better it is allowing people to feel more comfortable at having it like this, and that will make more people feel like maybe I don't need to go back. Maybe it's okay to be to be remote. If we're still in the folding chair, no, nah, I want to go back to my office. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's going to be fascinating where this all plays out, and I think the individuals that are handling it the best are acknowledging the fact that there are some things that are really freaking tough about it, and there are some times where I really just wish that we could do our strategic planning meetings all around the table and get in front of a whiteboard, but there are some things that are incredibly inspiring about it and what I've seen people accomplish and the amount of time that they've maybe been able to spend extra time with their families, and that's given them a level of energy that they didn't have before when they were commuting 55 minutes each way. I think we need to acknowledge the negatives, but also embrace some of the positives and then see what kind of world and working world we want to create on the other side of this. Your company is very, it, it's very tech forward and that's cool. But, but at the end of the day, you do leadership development and leadership training. So if we remove the simulation and the technology piece, what you have is a company that is focused around leadership development and leadership training. How did you realize that you had a passion for that, for developing people, for helping leaders get better? Because if it wasn't with ability, it might be with a low tech company, but that seems like what you like doing. I'm the happiest when I'm facilitating. So it isn't what I do full time. I only facilitate probably one or two of our sessions a month, but I love watching the light bulb moment happen. You know, in one of our simulations, um, there's these characters that you have to deal with, and it's almost inevitable that somebody, after one to two hours of gameplay, is going to stand up or raise their virtual hand during one of the debriefs and say, "You know, I had." a Tamika on one of my teams. And Tamika is one of the characters in the game, so you don't have to talk about real employees, you can use these character archetypes. And they'll share how they really struggled as a manager. And for the first time, maybe they felt comfortable enough in a training to actually be pretty vulnerable. And I, I don't know why, I really like that. I like people, I like watching kind of transformations happen in real time. You know, they'll say something to the effect of, I'm handling the Tamika character in the game, and if I had only 
handled the Tamika in real life in the same way, I think it would have been more successful. And I'm thinking about who my current employees are and how I can adjust my approach as a result of what I'm struggling with or what I'm succeeding with in the game. And for some reason, I, I really enjoy that. that. That gives me a ton of energy. Was there a time in this process for you when you're dealing with people and leading people and teaching leadership development where something that you did or a way that you that you influenced and led people that you had your own light bulb moment and you realized this is the wrong way to do this i need to change something like you you thought it was right you had the best of intentions but you had to do almost a 180 on how you led people a lot of the times where we run into issues is our simulations are built to be somewhat industry agnostic our belief is that whether you're a rising leader at dell computers or whether you're a new manager at coca-cola you're struggling with a lot of the same things about um, getting at how do you provide feedback? How do you listen to your employees? How do you understand what motivates them? I think I once ran into an issue of not leaning enough into the fact that there are industries that it is just very different. We work with some in the oil and gas industry and the people that they're managing are just very different and they need to approach them in a totally different way. And as somebody who has mostly managed people in a more office context in my life, I think I realized that I was being, I was doing a disservice by not acknowledging that we all struggle with some similar things, but also there are some industry variabilities that sometimes we as a company don't do enough to acknowledge. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that in in my consulting practice, it was a a, a, a an eye opening experience the first time I consulted for a a governmental organization, a very a small one, but a governmental organization where it was virtually impossible to get fired from. And in my in my mind, you know, you, you I, I the in the past the companies I've consulted for, you always know that at le at the very least you can assume the person doesn't want to lose their job, and the company wants to keep them. So b both people want that person to be there. Or why would you try to make them better? Why wouldn't they just you know that kind of why would you just fire them, get them to leave, whatever it is? And so the the first time where that element was removed, meaning you can't fire somebody because they have a a, a very powerful union that represents them. There's a process. If you if you you can have them not come to work, but they're still going to get paid. It changes the motivation of a lot of stuff, and it changes the way that some sim some simulations and some real life things would would have to work. So yeah, I, I get that. How there there can be differences that are very industry based. I have a lot of friends who kind of ask after I'll go somewhere and give a training or I'll do a training virtually. Like, what's the thing that resonates with you more than anything? The thing that resonates with me more than anything is people who have ascended to high level of organizations really want people below them to succeed. There's an honest to goodness sense of they not only want the people on their team to succeed because they know it will help them professionally, they actually truly got into management or they're successful in management because they really care about the people on a more personal level, not just as a conduit for them to be more successful. And I think that's been a wonderful reinforcement for me. Um, I remember early managers in my career that made my life a lot easier and allowed me to grow and climb the corporate ladder. And, and I think that still persists to this day. I'm, I'm constantly impressed with the people that we get to work with. Do you think that's more prevalent now than it was? Or do you think it's just more rewarded now than it was? Meaning it used to be that more people could ascend without really having that and now they can't? Or do you think more people actually want that now? I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm 
always shocked with when we talk to a prospective client about why they're intrigued by our offering. It's usually something that goes some way of the vast majority of our corporate training is, is subpar and it's not interactive. And we want something that's interactive and people are clamoring for a gamified approach to practice. But the other thing that they love about it is they love that it's team-based. And what they say is our people are working more collaboratively than they ever have before. And our training is still pretty individualistic. And I think that's what needs to change. We need people to do more role-playing. We need people to do more case studies and team projects. We need people's training to reflect more of their day-to-day -day working. And now we probably need a little bit more of that to reflect their remote work environment, which is still somewhat collaborative, which brings about its own challenges. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a, there's a disconnect sometimes when it comes to calling people a team when they aren't actually a team. They're, they're a team in the sense that they all do the same thing, but you know, it, it, a soccer team is all doing the same thing and they win or lose together. A, a chess team, they're all doing the same thing, but you win or lose individually. And I think in a lot of organizations, you, there, there are leaders who struggle because individuals are kind of scorecarded or benchmarked or they progress because of their individual results, not because of a team result. But yet when it comes to talking about how to, how to get better, they're never talking about an individual, they're talking about a team. How do we get better as a team? And, and without being able to foster that culture of, hey, you know what? We should know about each other's weaknesses and our strengths. We should partner together. We should, we should get more collaboration. Hey, you know what? I'm going to work you with you because you're really good at this, but you're really bad at this. And you're really good at this, but you're really bad at this. And by working together, you, you kind of the rising tide raises all boats. It's really tough to do that as a, as a leader um, if, if you don't really have the buy-in of your people. I agree. And I also think there's a level of vulnerability that is accepted now that I think just wasn't before. I've never heard somebody in one of our trainings be really vulnerable about something that they struggle with and have it not benefit them with their team. I think people appreciate that we all kind of try to put on this veneer of unbelievably successful, never struggles, no worries, no. And when people actually open up and say, honestly, this is what I really struggle with. And for four years early in my career, I just couldn't get out of my own way. And this is how I tripped myself up. I think that actually ends up being an appealing candidate in, uh, or characteristic of leaders, and I've definitely seen that. I completely agree with that. I, I, no one trusts anybody who's perfect because perfect doesn't exist, which means if you seem perfect, you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so if a person is going through this decision-making process in their own head, how, are, how would they do it in order to make sure that they can not seem like they're taking too long. Like, get, let me get back to you after I kind of methodically go through this. How, how can leaders kind of learn to kind of, uh, you know, summon this and have it happen in their head as, they, as, as they're making the decision go through these three steps? Okay, so the three steps that I covered in the TED Talk are challenge the constraints, which is basically focused on how do you actually take a problem and not just jump right in to solve it, which is what we see time and time again. You throw Always. a problem at somebody and it's like the squirrel chasing a, a, a nut. Like they just go after the problem. They don't take the step back. So that's kind of step one. We talked about step two, which is embracing a pre-mortem, which goes against kind of our normal tendency to either do a post-mortem or assume we're going to be successful. So I think that's the the second real rung of the ladder is you have to at least when you're on the doorstep of making a decision, assume you're gonna fail, because a lot of times we don't do that, and then mitigate that failure. 
And then the third step is check the basics. And the reason that comes out is we've watched some senior leaders in our game put together these unbelievably advanced spreadsheets and different plans and SWOT analysis is about how they're gonna get somewhere. And they just forget to do something really simple. And what we found is when the complexity of the decision goes up, you become more likely to make a simple decision. So that's the three-step process that we have. And then we have a few other tricks that are kind of more for those run-of-the-mill, quick-hitting decisions. And I, I can talk about those in a second. It's so interesting because it seems so obvious that like, it's like, a, yeah, of course. Of course, that's what you should do. Of course, that's what you should do. But in the moment, we we trust our gut. We think that this is the right thing to do. And we, we, we don't want to um, second guess ourselves. We always hear that, you know, sometimes you go with your gut, especially if it's worked for you. If your gut has led you the right way, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like if you do flip a coin and you get 10 heads in a row, the natural assumption is that the 11th one's going to be the 11th one's going to be heads also and it's still 50-50 on that 11th one just like it was on the previous 10. Um it, we we definitely derail ourselves that way. And and I think sometimes it is hard to put in place, you know, a three-step process and go about it. I mean, our game is built around decision making, so you have an opportunity to really think and decide. Um when it's a more split-second decision, I I have two other things that I, I like to tell people to do. One is if it's an adversarial decision, meaning you need to decide and there's an opponent or, you know, real or even a figment opponent, always put yourself in the position of your opponent. If you were the opponent, what would you want you to do? And then do the opposite. So get yourself into the position of the opponent. I always think about with sports, if your team is on defense and I'll use a football analogy and it's fourth down and one to go, sometimes you don't want the team to go for it. You just want them to punt, which should be your reason to go for it. If you were on the other side of the game, you would want the team to go for it. So sometimes you have to put yourself in the perspective of your adversary and use that as the context to how you make a decision. You've been doing this a while. Do you, I'm assuming that within a few minutes or at least the first part of a simulation, you kind of have in your own head assumptions about the people that go through this, meaning, okay, I see 24 people going through this. I know that these three people are going to knock it out of the park. These three people are really going to struggle and give me a little bit more time and I'll figure out where the last 18 are. But as you get through, you kind of have assumptions about people. What, what kind of skills or traits do you see out of people that lead you to believe that they're going to be successful in times when you are validated and they become successful. One of the things that I enjoy more than anything else about my job is getting into a room or getting on uh, a virtual training and making the predictions in my head about who's going to be successful. And I think if I had to, <laughs> if I had to boil it down to one thing, those that talk the most early are usually the least successful. Those that hang back and listen and try to understand their colleagues, all of these are team-based events, so you want to be somebody who can get consensus near the end of the round or the end of the experience. And those that just jump in, guns a-blazing, and want to kind of assert dominance tend to really struggle. Those that are a little bit more, um, maybe even introverted in the beginning and are doing more listening rather than talking tend to be the ones that are the most successful and are seen by their teammates as the best leaders by the end of the experience. Do you think that's because they, um, they 
they already practice that. Meaning if a, by the time they're there, these people have worked together, right? Because they work in the same companies, they're there together, they're not randomly assigned. So there's already relationships there. Um, but, you know, I could imagine during the first five minutes, a quiet person actually just kind of being like, I, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing here and they don't contribute at all. So like, what's the difference between a person who's sitting back because they're, they're, they're introspective and they're trying to make sure everybody has a chance to talk versus a person who just kind of doesn't want to be there. So the interesting thing about the work that we do is it's probably 50, 50 that these people would know each other before many times the people that get together have all um, ascended to a certain level in the organization, but they're potentially from many different departments. So it might be the senior vice president in charge of HR in a training with the director of legal from a different region. So they potentially might anecdotally know about the other person, but this might be the first time in this high potential program or this new manager certification program that they've ever actually worked with somebody on a project. So I think that's a big part of it. When we do trainings with intact teams, our clients usually like to mix the group up so that they can use it as a networking opportunity as well to build new networks. So I would say mostly it's not somebody that you work with Monday through Friday normally. That's good. I like that a lot. The the Hacking Your Leadership podcast, in each of our episodes, we have our one-minute hack. And our, our one-minute hacks are you kind of you know, one-minute-ish uh, tips for listeners to take away that they could you know, um, they could use in their daily life almost immediately if they wanted to. Sometimes it means writing things down or journaling, but either way, it's something they can take away that will make them better leaders right away. Is there something that is decision-making related that you can think of that you would want our listeners to take away from this, to think, this is what I can do right away without having to go through the the, the ability simulation class or watching a 12-minute TED Talk I I can start doing this right away and it will make me a better leader. Okay, so my favorite decision-making hack, and it's a a quick one, is this, and I I definitely, this is not mine, I'm not taking credit for it. Um, If you're ever struggling with a decision, and we tend to think in terms of like ranking it, like, you know, one to 10, 10 I really wanna do it, one I really don't wanna do it. The hack is use the same scale, but I'm gonna throw out the number seven. And the reason is because, or this was the perspective that they had, is that seven is this wonderful default number. It almost like gives you a safe escape. And so what ends up happening is if you have to rank it one to 10 and I throw out seven, eight, nine, and 10 start to become things that you should probably do. And anything six or lower, you probably shouldn't do. And seven as being out of the picture, actually forces you to kind of pick a side. I absolutely love that. I, um, in my in my consulting practice, I created an engagement survey that I issue to companies and it's a scale of one to five and there is no three. It's a one, a two, a four, and a five because no one, and I'll tell you something, if the leadership is great, the threes will become fours because they'll get the benefit of the doubt. And if the leadership is terrible, the threes will become twos. But either way, you'll get a much more believable and accurate representation of what the engagement of organization is. So I, I love that that kind of decision-making hack too. A seven would definitely be my default and it would lead me to believe that I still didn't know what to do yet. So you're right, you remove the seven for sure. <laughs> Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. Um, please give a, a plug for what you're doing or anything that you want our, our listeners to kind of do. I'm not sure if you have any projects going on or websites 
websites or social media, you know, kind of kind of ask our listeners to do something for you. No, I really appreciate it. Um, on social media, the handle is Matthew Confer. Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn are probably the three platforms that I'm the most active on. We launched a podcast earlier this year called Learn to Lead, which I have the pleasure of hosting. My company made the mistake and, and put me in charge of that, but it has been one of the most enjoyable professional pursuits that I've had. So it's Learn to Lead. Feel free to check us out there. And then Ability, feel free to reach out if you have any questions about leadership development or, or anything that we're doing on that front. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Matthew. You have a great day. Thanks. You too. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20.